0: Hello. I want to welcome everyone to the Grand Rounds today. Thank you for coming to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds for those of you who are here and also those of you watching remotely. It's my great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Erica Moen as our speaker today. Dr. Moen got her bachelor's degree from Brown University in biology and then went on to get a master's in translational research from University of Chicago as well as her PhD from University of Chicago in cancer biology, and then came to Dartmouth um, as a postdoc in biostatistics. So she's a great example of um, our kind of interdisciplinary scientist, and we're fortunate to have her here now as a tenure track assistant professor, um, embarking on some very innovative and exciting research that um, really focuses on network analysis, biostatistics, and biomedical informatics applied to cancer care quality delivery and um, cancer care outcomes. So. Um, she's already ha- have an exciting track record working with Dr. Margaret Karagas' Cobrey as a project leader and John Skinner's po one and other um, m- many other uh, funded projects on her own and is off to an exciting start that we are going to hear about some of her um, innovative ongoing work um, today. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Moten.
1: Hello, everyone. Is the mic working? Okay. Great. So, today, I'm really excited to be uh, sharing some of my ongoing work with you. The title of my talk is Diffusion of Genomic Testing in Breast Cancer. And I thought I would start by showing you um, a visualization of a network that happens to maybe Represent us actually. So, um, what the network shows is a breast cancer patient sharing network that was created using um, electronic health records from the Dartmouth Hitchcock system. So, in this visualization, each of the circles or nodes is a physician who cared for a breast cancer patient within the DH system, and then edges between the circles are um, indicate that those two physicians shared a breast cancer patient. Um, and the way it's visualized is. Um, physicians who share a lot of patients with a lot of other physicians are brought towards the center of the network. And as you can see, those tend to be surgical oncologists, uh, medical oncologists, and um, radiation oncologists. And then as you extend out towards the network periphery, um, you see more primary care providers and other specialists that might be involved in a patient's um, cancer care uh, treatment. So um, what I'm really interested in is, using network analysis to characterize the organization of these networks so we can learn more about um, how patient sharing ties might impact teamwork or um, exposure to new cancer treatments, and then how this could then all impact care quality and patient outcomes. This is my disclosure statement. I have no disclosures. And before I begin, I wanted to start off with the acknowledgements. The students who worked with me who really led the analyses that I'm presenting are Ronnie Zipkin, who's an MD-PhD candidate in the QBS program, and Thomas Schwadhelm, who just graduated from the QBS master's program. Um, Andrew Schaefer is a senior analyst who helped with a lot of the data builds, and then I'm lucky to work among a really great group of colleagues um, who I view as advisors and mentors. Um, And then the This work has been funded, the first part of my talk was funded through Margaret's um, Center for Molecular Epidemiology, COBRE, and I've been a project leader on that for a little over a year. And then the second part of my talk is actually using um, funds from the Cancer Center. I was awarded an ACS pilot grant through the Cancer Center last fall, so I'll be showing the results from that project, which we're hoping to submit for publication shortly. So, I'm really interested in genomic testing in breast cancer and how it is used to guide treatment decisions. Um, in the United States, there are approximately at 100,000 newly diagnosed early-stage breast cancer patients each year. And one of the important decisions that oncologists have to make is whether to prescribe chemotherapy to an early-stage breast cancer patient. One of the tools that they have at their disposal to help make this decision is uh, our genomics. And Um, For instance, they can um, better understand a patient's risk for uh, disease recurrence by measuring the gene expression profile of the patient's tumor. And one of the most widely used tests that um, accomplishes this is called Oncotype DX, and it's a gene expression profiling test that measures the expression of 21 genes and then categorizes the patient based on their uh, risk of disease recurrence. So what this test does is it identifies patients who, are, who have a low risk of disease recurrence, who are therefore unlikely to need um, adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to hormone therapy. So it's identifying patients who we can spare the toxic side effects of chemotherapy because they're unlikely to receive any benefit from receiving that adjuvant treatment. So when a patient is with early stage breast cancer is prescribed Oncotype DX, there's an RS score, the um, risk score, is returned and then patients are categorized as being at low, intermediate, or high risk of disease recurrence. As I mentioned, low risk patients um, were shown to have equal survival when, and disease-free survival when treated with hormone therapy alone, um, compared with hormone therapy plus adjuvant chemotherapy. So now we recommend only hormone therapy for low risk patients. Intermediate patients um, were recommended hormone therapy plus adjuvant chemotherapy and then high risk patients a recommended hormone therapy plus adjuvant chemotherapy. So, one of the perspectives that I like to take when thinking about this work is framing um, access to genomic testing um, through the lens of cancer health equity, because variation in access to precision medicine testing in cancer can contribute to cancer health disparities and missed opportunities to improve outcomes. Um, there have been concerns that precision medicine will benefit only a small segment of the population while increasing the overall cost of healthcare. care. And studies have shown that on average, approximately 30 percent of eligible patients receive Oncotype DX. And there's um, several patient and physician characteristics that um, are associated with the use of Oncotype DX. So just for a patient to be eligible, things like breast cancer stage, lymph node status, and hormone receptor status are all evaluated um, in addition to patient age. And these are, um, uh, all of these characteristics should be evaluated in terms of um, of the decision to use Oncotype DX. And then studies have also um, studied physician characteristics that are associated with the genomic testing in general, not necessarily specific to Oncotype DX, but they found that clinical experience um, was associated with use of genomic testing, meaning um, years since graduating from med school. Uh, Physicians who graduated more recently are more likely to incorporate genomic testing into their clinical practice because they received more training for it. More recently, um, local practice norms. So, it could be that the practice decides to adopt a certain test. So, then um, that impacts the individual physician. And familiarity with genomics. So, how comfortable the physician is with genomics just in terms of interpreting the results themselves and communicating the results to patients. So, my two studies leverage state and national data to uncover patterns related to genomic testing in breast cancer. Uh, Part one of my talk is the um, project that was funded by the COBRE, and in this project, I investigate factors that impact physician uptake of Oncotype DX. So in this study, I'm interested in early adoption and diffusion of Oncotype DX in breast cancer care using national Medicare claims data. And then in the second part of my talk, um, I use New Hampshire State Cancer Registry data to study the trends of Oncotype DX and chemotherapy utilization for breast cancer patients in New Hampshire. And this was the study that was funded by the um, Cancer Center funds. So, the reason why this is important to study is that variation in Oncotype DX use persists. This test was FDA approved in um, 2006, um, and several studies have since then investigated patient characteristics that are associated with um, Oncotype DX testing, and they found, and um, several studies have shown that white patients are more likely to receive the test than non-white patients. Uh, one study showed that you are more likely to receive the test if you are cared for by a medical oncologist with fewer than five years of clinical experience, which is sort of supporting the hypothesis that um, oncologists who received more recent training in genomics are more likely to adopt genomic testing in practice. And, um, patients are also more likely to prescribe another breast cancer molecular test, um, which could just be that the practice has incorporated um, genomic testing in a more routine manner. However, not much is known about how provider and health system factors influence early adoption and diffusion of Oncotype DX. So the objective of my study was to identify associations between characteristics of medical oncologists and their peer networks in early adoption and diffusion of Oncotype DX. So, this figure shows the conceptual framework of the project, um, acknowledging that both patient characteristics and oncologist characteristics are likely relevant for the decision to adopt Oncotype DX. So, for patient characteristics, things like age, race, socioeconomic status, and morality might be related to whether they receive Oncotype DX testing. Um, clinical characteristics, such as, you know, their tumor stage and hormone status, whether they are seen at an academic medical center or an NCI cancer center. And then uh, using claims, we can also calculate some measures that are describing their care experience, so their continuity of care, meaning how long lived is their relationship with their medical oncologist, do they stick with one person, or are they sort of bouncing around between different medical oncologists, and then um, some network-based measures of coordination that can capture how often their team of uh, providers tend to share patients with each other. And then the oncologist characteristics we're um, interested in is their patient volume, practice setting, rurality, and then using the network, we characterize aspects of their network position and their use among their colleagues. And then the um, right-hand side of the figure shows something that's ongoing um, in our group right now, but relatively unexplored so far is that um, the idea that the characteristics of the hospital referral region might actually impact the effectiveness of the diffusion, meaning the proportion of oncologists that end up prescribing Oncotype DX over time. So, um, whether it's still limited to just a few oncologists in a region um, adopting Oncotype DX or if most of the oncologists in that region have adopted Oncotype DX and the role that the network structure might play in that. The first step in this project was to use the national Medicare claims to assemble a breast cancer patient sharing physician network. So we identified uh, Medicare breast cancer patients using a validated claims-based algorithm, which is um, will enrich us for newly diagnosed breast cancer patients, and then using their claims, um, we linked them to the providers they saw uh, 12 months following their diagnosis and three months prior to their diagnosis. So we're trying to identify all of the providers they saw within a time of active breast cancer treatment. And this is actually um, what we call a bipartite network where edges exist between patients and providers, two different types of social entities. And then we project that to a unipartite network shown on the right where the edges are the physicians and ties between physicians exist if they share patients. So, in this case, um, physicians A and B share a patient, so they would be connected in our network. Physicians A and C don't share a patient, so they're not connected in our network. So, we assembled a national breast cancer patient sharing network for the years 2008 to 2013. And this is just showing the scale of our data. So, we um, identified approximately 80 to 90,000 breast cancer patients linked them to the providers they saw within that timeframe of three months prior to 12 months following their diagnosis, and then identified edges based on sharing breast cancer patients. give you um, some frame of reference in 2012, um, even though it looks like there's a lot of physicians in our network, this is including any provider that they saw in that timeframe based on claims of the breast cancer diagnosis code. Uh, about 9,000 of them were medical oncologists, which represent 70 um, percent of all medical oncologists reported in the AMA file for that year. Uh, so, the next thing that we did was evaluated the Oncotype DX trends in our study period using the Medicare claims data, and we can identify um, patients who received the Oncotype DX test um, using uh, the claims, and then we can identify the physician that was the referring physician for that claim. So, um, as you can see, the red, the um, blue line represents the number of oncotype DX, the number of patients prescribed oncotype DX each year. Um, So, you can definitely observe increased utilization of oncotype DX over time. And then the number of unique oncotype DX prescribers. So, these are the physicians that are um, on the claim for oncotype DX. And uh, you see that that is also increasing over time, but then there is sort of a leveling off in the later years, right under right around 5,000. And this is, um, it's sort of interesting to zoom in at some of the earlier months. So I mentioned that um, it was CMS covered Oncotype DX in 2006. And um, in 2000, so at the end of 2007, ASCO included Oncotype DX in their guidelines for evidence-based care for early stage breast cancer. And then NCCN followed suit right at the beginning of 2008. And you can really see the increase in the uptake of Oncotype DX right around that ASCO guideline release. This is um, using monthly counts of new prescribers of Oncotype DX at the physician level. And then you can see another little bump right after the NCCN guidelines, which might be related to the guideline release. Um, But, and then after that, um, the blue line is new prescribers of Oncotype DX. Um, and the red line is like the cumulative count over time. Uh, So, since we had data from 2000, uh, these maps are showing 2008 to 2013, um, we calculated the percent of oncologists who prescribed Oncotype DX in each year out of all of the oncologists within that hospital referral region. And so this is 2008, so this is a really early uh, time period for Oncotype DX. And you can see some, um, the percents range from zero, which is very light yellow to 100, which is darker red. And some of these areas that are, seem to be very um, heavy early adopters are uh, Houston and Texas, Salt Lake City, um, and some. Oh, and I think um, Philadelphia is also really dark. So you can kind of see some areas that might've been really enthusiastic about um, Oncotype DX right when it first came out. And then when we look at trends over time, you'll see darkening in general overall, meaning more and more providers are adopting Oncotype DX. Um, And then by the time we get to 2013, like some of the darker areas are in more uh, areas that might look rural. And that's because I think there's just fewer oncologists. So, to get to 100% of three or five is a lot easier than getting to 100% of 40, for instance. You can kind of see that better in this graph. So, in this graph, The x-axis is the proportion of oncologists who prescribed Oncotype DX in 2009. The y-axis is the proportion who prescribed in 2013. And the size of, so each of these points is a hospital referral region, and the size of the node corresponds to the number of oncologists in that region. So So the small nodes mean that there's just not a lot of oncologists there. The larger nodes means there's more. And overall, there's, things tend to be, increasing over time, so above the line. Um, So, there is diffusion, meaning more oncologists are prescribing Oncotype DX over our study period. um, But we see, and we see the most variation in hospital referral regions with fewer oncologists. And one of the things that's interesting is um, the proportion of oncologists who prescribe Oncotype DX is really strongly correlated with the a proportion of patients who actually get Oncotype DX. And um, so, it's not like just targeting a couple oncologists is really sufficient to making sure that all patients have uniform access to a test. I think this is sort of supporting the hypothesis that um, you want to have everyone on board just to make sure that um, patient access to something like a genomic test would be uniform within a region. And this is actually supported by um, more qualitative work that, showed, I think through um, surveys, that um, one of the most common reasons for a patient to not get the Oncotype DX test was that it wasn't offered by their oncologist. Uh, So now I'm gonna start showing you some model results. And um, what we did was we ran some physician level models where we characterized physicians based on the first time they prescribe Oncotype DX in our data. We characterized early adopters as someone who prescribed Oncotype DX between 2007 and 2009. And then we characterized, like, late adopters as um, uh, physicians who adopted for the first time who were present in our network at those earlier years but didn't adopt until um, after 2010, 2010, 2012. Uh, So, this is just showing um, characteristics of early adopters. So, these are the oncologists who adopted Oncotype DX between 2007 and 2009. The first set of columns show the unadjusted odds ratios, and then the second set show the adjusted. And one of the interesting things, which isn't surprising, but it's something that we have to deal with when we're thinking about this, is that patient volume is a really strong predictor, predictor of early adoption, and this could be of a mechanical association where if you see a lot of patients, you're more likely to see eligible patients sooner so that way you have the opportunity to prescribe Oncotype DX sooner, whereas someone who is a more low-volume provider um, might not see eligible patients as often so they don't have as many opportunities to prescribe Oncotype DX. Um, We didn't see any difference between genders of the physician and um, what we did next, so since these are physician-level models, it's a little bit tricky to adjust for patient characteristics. Um, we're running some patient characteristics now, which I'll talk about after this. But we tried to summarize like what their patients looked like. So their mean patient age, and um, we calculated the proportion of their patients who were treated at a teaching hospital or an NCI Cancer Center, um, the proportion of patients who are in rural areas, the proportion of patients who are white, um, and. Basically, um, so the the oncologists who have patients treated more at cancer centers, it wasn't quite significant, but it was um, positively associated in in the unadjusted model with earlier adoption. Um, And we were a bit surprised to see a positive association between, like, more rural patients and Oncotype DX early adoption, but that actually went away when when we were in the fully adjusted model. Um, And then these are sort of the um, care experience measures I alluded to earlier where we were um, among their patient panel, do their patients tend to have continuous care and care indicative of um, higher quality coordination potentially and both continuity of care and uh, care density among the care team network were positively associated with early adoption. So these are some things that we're sort of thinking about, but we haven't quite, figured out exactly how we're interpreting that. And I think that'll, patient level models will really help um, elucidate some of these relationships in a better way. But we were doing a physician level model because we were interested in whether um, ties to early adopters impact Oncotype DX adoption in a later period. Um, Because what, one of the things that we can do with networks is understand influence between different physicians in the network. So we consider two types of exposure. Uh, one is based on patient sharing. So based on that patient sharing network, if someone who you share patients with adopted Oncotype DX in the early time frame, are you more likely to adopt Oncotype DX in the later years? But then we also built a co-location network um, where we linked physicians who were practicing in the same zip code. And we allowed physicians to practice in multiple zip codes if that's where we're observing their, them um, submit claims for encounters, and this gets to the idea, well, medical oncologists don't always share patients with each other, but they might practice in the same location. Um, and co-location networks haven't been um, explored as much in the, in this, like, provider network space compared with patient sharing. Um, so the two bottom rows are um, sort of those two exposure measures that we were interested in. And this is now predicting um, whether a physician adopted Oncotype DX in 2010 and 11. And in the unadjusted models, both sharing patients with an early adopter and being co-located with an early adopter were associated with adoption. Um, but then in the adjusted model, uh, just the co-location exposure remained significant. Um, some of the other associations were, um, similar to above, and again, patient volume is sort of this like big confounder in our analyses, um, I think. So we ended up stratifying by high, intermediate, and low volume providers. Um, so we looked specifically at the highest volume providers and the lowest volume providers. And what we found was that um, this like, idea of exposure, especially co location with early adoption, uh, early adopters was strongest among low volume providers. Uh, so The idea that um, if you're high volume, you might rely less on exposure through peers compared to a low volume provider. I think this might make intuitive sense. I mean, the idea that network effects are going to be exactly the same across all these different contexts is unlikely. So, um, you know, considering the volume of the provider, where their uh, practice setting is, are they rural versus urban? Are they in an academic teaching center? Um, All of these things might interact with or might affect the influence of network effects on an outcome. So, that's something that we're interested in exploring more. Medicare claims is we don't have, uh, it's not linked to registry data. So, while we get like the nice national network, we're um, missing some important variables that are um, helpful when doing patient analyses. So, we are um, right now running some claims based algorithms to exclude patients who are stage four. Um, and then we're also excluding patients who received uh, Herceptin, meaning they're HER2 positive, because we're trying to um, identify the breast cancer patients who are at least potentially eligible for Oncotype DX. And then um, Doing that, we'll be able to better um, under. we'll then do some hierarchical modeling where we can adjust for all the patient characteristics that we have and then look at characteristics of their providers and characteristics of their um, hospital referral region in terms of what predicts a patient receiving type DX. The nice thing about the provider level analyses is we can say, you know, when is the first time we observe someone um, prescribing Oncotype DX? And, and this might get a little bit more at, well, what are the, just the general um, characteristics associated with Oncotype DX testing. And one of the things that I'm um, excited about moving forward is linking the effectiveness of the diffusion to network characteristics. So these are examples of three hospital referral regions. We only included um, cancer specialists in these networks, so it's not all the providers. It's just the medical oncologists, radiologists, and surgeons. I think those were the three that we included. Right now they're just colored according to what year they first adopted Oncotype DX. And I'm just interested in, um, you know, how, what are the network structures that are associated with more oncologists ending up adopting Oncotype DX by the end of our study period? Um, Does it have to do with the structure, the organization of the ties or the centrality? So, how central So in the next part of my talk, I'm um, going to be talking about using the New Hampshire State Cancer Registry to um, evaluate how Oncotype DX testing impacts treatment decisions. So the first part of my talk was all about, you know, who is actually using the test, and the second part of my talk is about, well, how does that actually impact treatment decisions? Um, are we changing the way we're prescribing chemotherapy and things like that? So. Um, Just to remind you, um, once the patient is categorized as low, intermediate, or high risk of disease recurrence, that would impact their treatment strategy. Basically, the decision of whether adjuvant chemotherapy is recommended or not. And in uh, 2013, there was a paper, it was a systematic review and meta-analysis published in Breast Cancer Research and Treatment, and they did um, sort of Look at all the studies that had evaluated whether oncologists changed their treatment decisions following Oncotype DX testing. And they found that in general, 20 to 40 percent of the time, the oncologists were changing their decision based on the Oncotype DX test, showing that this test is having clinical utility. It is changing um, the treatment plans for some of the patients that receive it. And there have been several studies at this point that have studied patient characteristics associated with receipt of chemotherapy following Oncotype DX test results. So, increasing rs score, meaning increasing risk of disease recurrence, is positively associated with receiving chemotherapy. Larger tumors, younger ages, um, were both associated with um, receiving chemotherapy. For race, there's actually been some mixed results. Some studies show that Um, You know, white patients are more or less likely to receive chemotherapy, so that hasn't really been consistent in the literature. And then there was a study that showed, I think, patients with higher income were more likely to receive chemotherapy. However, little is known about how physician characteristics impact treatment recommendations following Oncotype DX testing. So the objective was the study was to examine patient and physician characteristics associated with Oncotype DX testing and treatment decisions using New Hampshire State Cancer Registry data. So, the New Hampshire State Cancer Registry is a population-based database on all incident reportable cancers for New Hampshire residents, and um, it includes patient demographics, the date and mode of diagnosis, tumor characteristics, including grade and stage, and then um, our registry received special funding to collect data on who received Oncotype DX and what their test results were, and then we have their treatment plans. So, we can not only investigate who gets Oncotype DX, but then what their treatment plan was following that. So, we had data for years 2010 to 2016. We started out with about 10,000 patients, included um, approximately 2,400 patients with DCIS, or unknown stage. And then there were um, 3,000 patients who didn't have a medical oncologist listed in the registry. So, we ended up with 5,000 patients. About 1,300 of them received Oncotype DX, and 3,700 not received Oncotype DX. And then you can just, and then we further stratified by um, whether they received chemo or not. And this is maybe better visualized in this graph here, where the blue line shows patients who didn't receive Oncotype DX, and the red line shows people who did receive Oncotype DX, and the proportionate or the percent of patients receiving adjuvant chemotherapy treatment um, by those two groups. And over our study period, there's not a huge change in the percent of patients receiving adjuvant chemotherapy for those who weren't treated with Oncotype DX, but there is actually a, a pretty significant decline in the percent of patients who receive chemotherapy within the The intermediate risk shown in red uh, showed a decline of about 24 percent over our study period for receiving chemotherapy. And then the low-risk patients um, in 2010, about 11% of them received chemotherapy, but by 2016, fewer than 3% received chemotherapy. So, these are the medical oncologists that we identified in the registry data. Um, We had just over 200, and um, it was almost 50-50 male-female. Um, and this trend is actually opposite the national trend. More, you're more likely to have male medical oncologists nationally. And then these are the clinical experience. Um, so this is, in other words, years since they graduated med school. This is at the time they saw their first breast cancer patient in our data. Um, patient volumes so the mean number of patients per year was, um, you know, almost six. And then um, the average patient age per physician. So the first model we ran was to just investigate who received Oncotype DX among all breast cancer patients. And these are the patient characteristics associated with receiving Oncotype DX. So um, patients who are older were less likely to receive Oncotype DX. Married patients were more likely to receive Oncotype DX. Um, Lymph node positive patients were less likely, and this has to do with eligibility. um, Tumor size and then later clinical stages were less likely to receive Oncotype DX. So none of our physician um, variables were associated with receiving Oncotype DX. So we didn't observe that um, physicians with greater clinical experience were less likely to use the test, for instance, which has been shown in some other studies. Um, Gender was not associated with using Oncotype DX. We didn't see that in our national data either. I think one study might have shown that if you were seen by a female medical oncologist, you are more likely to receive Oncotype DX, but we haven't observed that in our data. Um, And patient volume was not associated with um, the patient receiving Oncotype DX. So, the next model we ran was chemotherapy, was, um, the outcome was chemotherapy recommendation following Oncotype DX testing. So, these are the patient characteristics um, associated with receiving chemotherapy following Oncotype DX. Um, So, patients who were older were less likely to be recommended chemotherapy, um, Uh, Grade three and four were more likely, lymph node positive were more likely to be recommended chemotherapy, larger tumors, um, later stages, and higher RS classifications. This is all what you would expect. Um, But then we did observe for physician characteristics, this is all part of the same model. I just split it onto two slides. Um, Physicians with more clinical experience were more likely to recommend chemotherapy, and male medical oncologists were less likely to recommend chemotherapy, Um, And then patient volume uh, was positively associated with chemotherapy recommendation. So we did split this um, to do some stratified analyses based on whether the patient was low or intermediate risk to see whether some of these associations were specific to low risk patients or high risk patients um, or intermediate risk. And um, what we found was that, let's see, I think the main thing, so the physician clinical experience wasn't associated in the low-risk patients, um, but the male gender was still associated with the low-risk patients for being less likely to recommend chemotherapy. And for intermediate risk, um, you don't see those physician characteristics associated. So, it seems to be um, more in the low-risk patients that we're seeing some of these um, associations And then um, what's kind of interesting is that the actual numeric score, so the RS, they categorize it as low, intermediate, or high, but there's a range of numbers that fall within those categories. And the actual numeric score was like very predictive of likelihood of recommending chemotherapy within the intermediate risk range. So it's just sort of suggesting that physicians are like relying on the actual number to help them make that decision, um, and not just the general uh, classification. Okay, so what we were doing was we were running these multi-level models, um, and we were including uh, what's called a random effect for the physician. So it's to account for unobserved clustering of patient, um, unobserved clustering by the physician. So um, if there's low variation in the decision to prescribe chemotherapy between physicians, for instance, if these three physicians all, all saw these five patients, which are um, otherwise, very similar, they would make you know the same decision. Um, if there's high variation in the decision to give chemotherapy, you might have a physician who's just more cautious and likely to prescribe chemotherapy, someone who is just at baseline less likely to res- prescribe chemotherapy, and then someone who's kind of in the middle. And um, we can use our model results to actually quantify the amount of unexplained variation that's due to just variation between physicians. So, we did that for each of our clinical decisions. So, we did it for receiving Oncotype DX, um, recommending chemotherapy after Oncotype DX, and um, receiving chemotherapy after Oncotype DX if you're lower intermediate risk. And this ICC, this interclass clustering coefficient ranges from zero to one, one being there's a lot of clustering. Within physicians, meaning there's a lot of variation between physicians and how they're making this decision. And a zero would be that there's no variation. And what you have the highest amount of variation um, between physicians is observed in receiving chemotherapy after a low risk ODX test result. Meaning that um, for patients who have the low risk, it seems to be that there's some between physician variation that's driving a decision to prescribe chemotherapy that isn't explained normally. Um, So, it could just be something like, you know, a baseline tendency or sort of this, you know, the idea of being either cautious or um, something like that that we can't capture in a model, but that is explaining a lot of the variation in the decision to prescribe chemotherapy after Oncotype DX testing. So, I think um, these studies on Oncotype DX do have implications for current and future use of Oncotype DX. Just in 2018, the New England Journal of Medicine published the results of a really large randomized clinical trial that was focused specifically on evaluating whether um, patients in the intermediate risk range were likely to benefit from chemotherapy. And they found that um, overall patients in the intermediate risk category aren't likely to benefit from chemotherapy unless they were a younger age. Um, So, again, this is sort of just... um, getting at the guidelines are going to be continuing to change as more evidence emerges about how this test might be useful. So, um, understanding how physis- whether physicians are using it and how they're using it will be helpful in terms of um, continuing to make sure that the test is being used um, in light of the latest evidence. And it's also being used in different ways. So, it's not just impacting the decision of whether chemotherapy might be uh, beneficial to the patient, but Actually, the AJCC just included Oncotype DX in its staging criteria. So um, it's essentially, it can be used to downstage patients to stage 1A if they meet um, any of these other criteria. And then when the Oncotype DX test shows that they have a recurrent score of less than 11, these patients would be downstage. So this is sort of like a different use of Oncotype DX in cancer care. Um, but again, it is relevant for um you know, how we're thinking about its being, how it's being used and, um, and how it could be used moving forward. So, in summary, um, in part one, I, ta- I showed you some of our preliminary work on factors that were associated with position uptake of Oncotype DX, so thinking about early adoption and diffusion. And we studied patient sharing and co-location with early adopters um, and identified them as positive predictors of adoption of Oncotype DX in the later time period. And the effects of co-location were strongest among low volume providers. So, this is something I'm like really interested in exploring more is um, thinking about where the network tends to be the most important and how can we learn about um, like diffusion in different settings by um, stratifying networks based on different criteria. And then in the second part, I showed you how, um, I showed you the results from our um, New Hampshire State Cancer Registry data on how Oncotype DX testing impacts treatment decisions. We found that um, oncologists with more clinical experience and female oncologists were more likely to recommend chemotherapy following testing. um, And that there was substantial between physician variation and chemotherapy recommendation, especially among the low risk. So that I'm happy to take any questions. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, I mean, some. So to get at that a little bit, like some people have tried to study, like attendance to national conferences and things, as like another way to get exposed to. certain things. And I think patient volume might help with that. Like if you're a rural provider, but you see a lot of breast cancer patients, I think you might be more likely to be up on that literature compared to a rural provider that sees very few breast cancer patients. But I think volume actually captures some of that too. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's a lot that using, I mean, the great, the good thing about using the Medicare, like the national data is you get sort of a broad, like a general population of oncologists, but it's hard to get some of the more nuanced data. Like that you might get if you are focusing on a specific site. or.
0: Something.
1: Right, yeah, it's easier to get affiliation to practices in the later years. So for some of our earlier years, it was hard for us to know exactly where physicians were practicing. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really good point. So we were trying to capture some of that with, um, you know, how many of their patients were seen at NCI cancer centers or academic medical centers to try to get a little bit at sort of what is the setting of their practice and how closely tied are they to research and like, uh, you know, being aware of what's going on in the research center. Yeah. Right, oh, that's a good idea. So we did include, we included the actual risk score in these models um, to adjust for that. But that is, I mean, so we, but we didn't look like really at a physician level, physician level to see what their risk scores were and whether maybe that is just varying. But um, we did control for it in these models. So that wouldn't be like, but yeah, like to identify really strong outliers. Right, yeah. Is. Yeah. Yeah, so we can't. We don't have subspecialty. I don't. I mean, we don't have like something like a breast cancer subspecialty. And the issue is, we don't know what their like patient denominator is. So we know how many breast cancer patients they saw, but we don't know what their what the denominator would be. So, I within the Medicare data, we right the registry data, we can't. But yeah, we could we could do something like that in the Medicare. Um, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good question. right, um, an early adopter would really be someone who, like, their first eligible patient they prescribe type DX. And as we're kind of refining our patient cohort to be more um, inclusive of only potentially eligible patients, we could get to that a little bit more, which I think would be a better definition of early adopter rather than just based on calendar year of adoption for the first time. Um, it just gets to be, you know, we would have to make a lot of, I think, I mean, I think it's, well, I can't really speak for all of uh, oncologists, but I think it's it's accepted. It's as an evidence-based test. It's recommended by several of the, you know, national societies. I don't think that every eligible patient needs to get it um, because I, I'm sure there's other, like, clinical characteristics that are just going to dominate the decision no matter what the test results show. So, but I think kind of um, identifying the patients that are most likely to be- benefit is something that is, like, still of interest and of importance, and um, like, within all of the eligible patients, is most likely. Like, you know, it changed the clinical decision 40, you know, 20 to 40 percent of the time. So, like, who were those patients where it actually changed the decision? Because those others are the people that you would want to get the test. Like, you know, i said, if you're just going to, you know, if the patient has a really large tumor, you're going to prescribe oncotype DX no matter what. I mean, prescribe chemotherapy no matter what, then that wouldn't be a good candidate, even if they were technically This is definitely the most dominant in the United States. Um, like in the New Hampshire State Cancer Registry, um, they collected any uh, multi-gene test, um, and I think this was, you know, 95% of them. Mammoprint is popular in Europe, um, and it's, we do use it here, but I think less often. No, about percent. not sure. Um, I don't know of any study that's like,
0: I don't know. Sorry.
1: But I think it, this is definitely the dominant one for this use anyway. I mean, there's other genomic tests that are used there for other reasons.
0: Yeah. Wait, so like, like, right.
1: Well, yeah. So, I mean, we actually just compared 2010 to 2016, but there's a lot of variation within those years. So, it, it was just to kind of give a general sense, but like, I mean, it was still 95 percent in 2015. You know what I mean? So, there's just variation. Yeah, I think, think, yeah, there's just fewer people in the high RS group, whereas non-ODX, it's a lot of patients, so it's probably just more standard over time. Bob? What do you mean by a care pathway? Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Do we have one that would be relevant? Yeah. (laughs) The idea of like a practice level adoption. Yeah, we've been thinking about that. So, um, I did some work previously where we actually aggregated the physicians up to hospitals. But the idea would be that, you know, if something is just happening in general at the practice or hospital, you can view that as a node in the network um, instead of individual physicians and then look at practice-to-practice influence, for instance. Um, so that's something that we've thought about doing. We just haven't gotten around to it yet. But, yeah, like, um, if there's a lot of, if we see, I mean, especially since co-location does seem to be really predictive, um, meaning you're practicing in the same place and maybe just everyone, um, it's, and, you know, it's part of a care pathway, for instance, where you just, everyone is on board, um, that could be, you know, a reason to aggregate at a higher level than physician. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't think anyone's going through without a medical oncologist. I think there's there were six different physician categories that could be attributed to any patient, like surgeon, referring physician, manager. The sh- the I think there's just missing this in those variables. Um, yeah, I mean, the, so I presented this some of this work at the registrar meeting. Um, Judy invited me to present to the registrars, who actually collect the data for the registry, and um, some of them seem to be under the impression that like they are always reporting medical oncologists. So I don't know if it's variation by site. Um, in terms of, you know, who's not reporting or they they were saying that, um, you know, sometimes they would just get that information from sitting in on the tumor boards. So, that's how they figured out or it would be based on EHR. So, yeah, I mean, I think that um, how that variable is actually recorded might, (laughs) Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I don't think it was like, I don't think it was so black and white like that. I think we did explore that a little bit to make sure it wasn't just like, a, you know, a hospital is completely missing. And I don't think we had that. Um, also, some of the like, well, it wasn't just that they didn't have a medical oncologist. Sometimes we just couldn't link it to NPI, I think was another issue. So if it was recorded as a hospital ID or an, like some people record it as just like the last name or something, and if we can't link that to an NPI, which gives us the other information, like their specialty and to confirm and their gender and things, um, we don't know. So it might have just been the ID wasn't useful to us. I mean, a bunch of the hospitals did provide crosswalks when we asked, so we tried to fill in.
0: Yeah.
1: Surgeons do. That's a really good question. So surgeons actually order like 30% of the Oncotype DX test. So we focus on medical oncologists um, sort of as a first pass because characteristics just might be so different between like a medical oncologist who's an early adopter and a surgeon who's an early adopter. And one of the things that's interesting is sometimes it actually might happen as a team where like the surgeon recommends the patient for Oncotype DX, but the medical oncologist is actually the one that's ordering it. So I mean, we've thought a lot about of how to deal with that issue of are we, you know, if we are going to start thinking about surgeons, do we, you know, consider them, you know, do we consider anyone who treated that patient an a doctor because we don't really know who was the first to say this person is, I mean, it just gets to be like and you're making decisions that you don't really have a lot of evidence for. But I think maybe a separate analysis on surgeons would be interesting to do um, to see if there's certain either regional variation in the extent to which that is happening or, um yeah, um, and I think one, like another option is just to say, well, do two medical oncologists share the same surgeon or share patients with the same surgeon? And that could be another way to kind of loop the surgeon in a little bit. Thank you.